May the Lord be with you. In chapter 2 of the book of Jeremiah, uh, God gives Jeremiah these words. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the stream of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. It doesn't rain very much in Israel, and so people had to figure out how to make the most of the rain when it came. And so people would build cisterns. A cistern is, uh, is a bowl, usually uh, formed in rock, uh, that uh, whenever the, the rain would come, uh, they would hold the water. And so somebody would figure out a way, how do we hold this water that's coming? And so what they would do is they would chisel these bowls out of big rocks so that when the rain came, it would hold the water. But of course, if a cistern began to crack, then it was useless. The water would fall into it and then simply fall out. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the stream of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, if there was someone that was in the desert who was hot and parched and thirsty, and there was no stream of water anywhere around, it would be understandable that they would build a cistern. They would do their best to catch any water that would fall so that they could use it. But I don't think we would have much pity on a person who knew that there was a stream of water someplace but who turned their back on it in order to build a cistern, just in case some rain came. This is the image that Jeremiah paints for us about the actions of God's people. They have been invited into a relationship with the Creator. God has made a covenant with his people, has extended to them his love, has given them his word, and they have turned their back on him to find life someplace else. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the stream of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Friends, we have been invited and been given a great gift and have been invited into a relationship with the true and living God so that we can receive life from him day by day. But too often we turn our backs from him, turn our backs from the stream of real life, and try to find our strength in life from some other source. Our sermon series since Easter has been about becoming like Christ. But before Easter, we spent uh, six weeks speaking about naming our idols. And in that sermon series, we, uh, we heard the message of Scripture that we become like whatever we worship. If we worship idols, if we place our hope and trust in things that are not God, then we will become like those idols. We will become spiritually dead, unresponsive to God. But we have been invited to come and worship Christ And as we worship him, we become like what we worship. We become like Christ. And this is what God is seeking to do in us through his spirit, a work of making us like Christ. 
is the work of the Holy Spirit to change our nature so that our minds and our hearts and our bodies desire what Christ desires. And the Holy Spirit does this work, as we've been saying, as we commit to certain spiritual disciplines and practices that the Spirit then uses in us to shape and to form us. These are spiritual disciplines and practices that enable us to receive life from God, to drink from the stream of life. The first of these practices uh, was prayer, which we heard Pastor Isaac speak about last week. And I've already heard from a few of you that you have taken heart his message and have set aside a certain time of the day and uh, to pray with someone and have taken seriously for that. And so we praise God that people have responded uh, to that message. Today we're going to talk about a second basic principle of the Christian life, which is reading our Bibles. Hearing and speaking. These are two of the most important practices in any relationship. Hearing and speaking with one another is how we get to know the other person and how they get to know us. Hearing and speaking. It is through prayer and through scripture that we hear from God and speak to God. Prayer and reading scripture are these two basic practices in our relationship to God. And if we want to grow to know God, if we want to become like Christ, if we want to drink from the streams of living water, then these are two practices that we must do every day. We know that it's hard to do, though, don't we? To persevere in this practice. And just as Isaac spoke last week about how sometimes when we begin to do it that it's difficult, but that as we continue to do it over time that it will become easier and easier and that we will desire to do it, just as that's true about prayer, in many ways it's also true about Scripture. It's a practice that we must persevere in. And we need to commit to doing it in our life, not out of out of the sense of obligation, not out of a... Uh, because you heard that Pastor Ryan said that you should do it. Not out of a sense of earning some good standing before God. We persevere in these practices of prayer and scripture every day because we love God. We want to know him. We want to be like him. And if we do not spend time hearing from him and speaking to him, then we will grow distant from him. Uh, this past week, uh, Katie and I, a few times, have said to one another, um, I miss you, uh, because it just seems that this week we have not seen one another very much. We've uh, had different things going on in the evenings, and so we've said, I miss you. We haven't had the chance to hear and speak with one another very much. Now, I don't want to um, hear and talk with Katie out of some kind of obligation or any kind of sense of feeling like I get her approval if I spend time listening to her. We want to hear and speak to one another because we love each other. This morning, we focus on the role that reading Scripture, hearing the Word of God, plays in making us like Christ. And so as I was praying about it this week, I was trying to figure out how to preach a read your Bible more sermon. Um, I heard one person say recently um, that there are some things in the Christian life that we need to be reminded of every six minutes. And um, I think that this is one of them. Reading our Bibles is one of those things we forget so quickly. It's a practice that is so easy to set aside. 
I'll do that tomorrow. I'll start that practice tomorrow. I'll, I'll do it tonight before I go to bed. All of you know that you should read your Bibles. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. And so there are really two things that I want to do this morning. I want to give you a vision of what Scripture is, why it is important to know it and to read it. And secondly, I want to introduce you to three different ways to read the Bible. Uh, these are ways that have been important for me, and I hope that I, as I pass them on to you that they may be also valuable to you. So I want to give you a vision for what Scripture is. Why are we, are we to read it? What is the importance of it in our life? And then also to hopefully give you some practical ways uh, to begin starting a regular reading of Scripture. Our text this morning is uh, the story of two of Jesus' followers who encountered Jesus on the road to a vi village called Emmaus. Uh, this is a rich story. And it may not immediately seem to be a, a read-your-Bible sermon passage, but among many things, this story is about the importance of the Word of God in our lives and how the Word of God shapes and forms us. In the story of the walk to Emmaus, it comes on the day of the resurrection. Two of Jesus' disciples one of them is named Cleopas, and the other is unnamed. They're walking along the road, and they're talking about all the things that they witnessed in Jerusalem that past weekend. Their minds are swirling about everything that they have seen. Uh, maybe they're telling some stories about things that they remember about Jesus, that, that time that he healed the blind man, or that time that he fed us with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. They're trying to make sense of all the things that happened to them that weekend and all of the things that happened to Jesus. And now they also know about this empty tomb. Some of the women who followed Jesus had gone to the tomb that morning, but it was empty. What do all of these things mean? For Cleopas and his friend, their whole life must have seemed to be in some way hanging in the balance. They had left everything to follow Jesus. They believed that he was the Messiah, the one sent by God to be the Savior of the world, and now he's dead. And now his tomb is empty. What does all of this mean? And in their confusion, in their wrestling about what all of this means, a stranger comes alongside the road. And this stranger does something that puts their life into perspective, puts their experience of that entire weekend into perspective. What is it that that stranger does? That stranger opens the word of God to them. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus was their hope. Jesus was the one in whom they placed all of their trust. In the experiences that they were going through, the death of Jesus on the cross, an empty tomb which still made no sense to them, all of this had led them to confusion and to despair, unsure of where they were to go and what they were to do. But then they encounter the Word of God. The story of the Bible is told to them. 
beginning with the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and on to the stories of Israel and the Promised Land, the stories of blessing and the stories of exile. This story is told to them. And as the Word of God, the story of the Bible is told to them, their experience begins to take on new meaning. It starts to make sense. Cleopas and his friend begin to see that their experiences of the previous day, their experiences of loss and disappointment and hopelessness and despair, while those feelings were very real, they are not the end of the story. They begin to realize that these things that they have witnessed, the suffering that Jesus went through, and their own suffering that weekend, had meaning and purpose. This stranger, who Luke tells us is Jesus, makes sense of their experience by opening up the word of God to them, by telling them the story. And I want to suggest to you that the story of Cleopas and his unnamed friend walking along the road is our own story. In fact, maybe Luke doesn't name this other friend because we can put our own name in this story. As we seek to make meaning in our lives, as we seek to understand who we are, what this life is all about, these things in our life that are really messy and that don't make sense, when we place ourselves in the story, things start to have meaning and purpose. When we understand our lives as a part of the ongoing story of God in the world, things can begin to make sense. There are many reasons that I could give today for why we should read our Bible. It is God's word to us, and so there are many ways to say why it is important. But I think that this is the most important. God's word is the story of God and his relationship to his creation, the story of his plans and purposes to redeem and reconcile the world to himself. And we must know this story and be sure with the help of the Spirit, that our lives are conformed to this story, if our lives in this very messy world are going to make any sense. One of my favorite authors, uh, N.T. Wright, gives an illustration to help us understand the biblical story that I found very helpful. I believe I've shared this with a few groups here at Ebenezer. Imagine that there was a group of Shakespearean actors who were cleaning out an old playhouse in England someplace. And they uncover an old play of Shakespeare that never had been found before. Brand new play by William Shakespeare. Can you imagine how excited they would be to uncover this play by William Shakespeare? But as they began to read through it, they found out that there was a problem that they had Acts number 1 through 4, and they had Act number 6, but Act number 5 was missing. If these actors decided that they wanted to put this play on stage, what would they do? No doubt these Shakespearean actors would study very closely the first four acts of the Shakespeare play. And they would study very closely act number six. And then 
they would write Act 5 themselves. They would improvise from what they knew of the story. And because they know Shakespeare so well, because they know the author so well, I think they could do that pretty well. I think this is an illustration of what the Word of God is for us in our own lives. The story of Scripture could also be divided into six acts. Act 1, the story of creation. Act 2, the story of the fall of humanity recounted through Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah and the Tower of Babel. Act 3, the story of God's calling of Israel and his relationship with them and his calling for them to be a people of blessing to the nations. Act 4, the story of Jesus himself, the Messiah who comes into the world. And in the scriptures, we also know some things of Act 6 as well. We know that the Messiah will return again and establish his reign and rule on the earth. And here we are in Act 5. Here we are as people who know this story. People who are to be familiar with Act 1 through 4 and familiar with what's going to happen in Act 6 so that we can live now faithfully to this story. I think that this is why we should read our Bibles, so that we can know the story of God, so that we can know his character throughout history, his plans and his purposes, so that we can know how to act as his people, so that we can know what our place is in this story, so that we can make sense of our own lives and live faithfully now. As we look in this story, this is what Jesus himself did. This is the example of Jesus. Jesus himself understood his vocation, his calling, his work, in light of the whole story of God. In the story on the road to Emmaus, Jesus doesn't come to these two very confused friends and say to them, hey, here I am, I'm risen, I'm the Savior. That's not how he explains himself to them. He explains who he is by telling the story and by telling his place in that story. Jesus himself understood that his life and death and resurrection only made sense, only had meaning as it was a part of what God had done before and what God was going to do in the future. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what the scripture said concerning himself. Like Cleopas and his friend walking along the road, we, I think, are often confused and dismayed in despair about what happens to us in our lives, about the messiness of our lives. What is the meaning of it all? The purpose and meaning of our life, both the joys and the struggles of it all, are given meaning only in the context of the story of what God is doing. And this is why you should read your Bible to come to know this story so that your life can be oriented and shaped around it. So I want to offer you uh, three practices of reading scripture that I found uh, valuable to me. Some of you may already have regular Bible reading practices uh, that you do, and if that's the case, I would encourage you to walk in them. But if you don't this morning, maybe today you're going... I know that I need to read my Bible, but sometimes I just don't even know where to start. I'm hoping to give you a few places to start. 
So there's three suggestions, and I, I don't suggest that you do all of these things every day. Um, I don't know how possible it would be for you to do it every day, um, but they are suggestions for something perhaps to hold on to today and consider if they are practices of reading the scripture that God is calling you to do. Suggestion number one is to familiarize yourself with the whole of the biblical narrative. Come to know Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 in context. And so what this would require you to do is to read through the Bible chronologically. Um, as you probably know, uh, Genesis through Revelation doesn't all happen chronologically. There are different books that are placed in different places, and it doesn't necessarily go chronologically. So at um, the Welcome Center today, uh, there is a 180-day Bible reading plan that will help you read through the whole of the biblical narrative. Not the whole Bible, but read through the whole of the biblical narrative from creation to revelation and understand the scope and the shape of this narrative story. I think it may be true of many of us, uh, even many of us who have been in church for a very long time, that we know the stories of the Bible, but we do not know the story of the Bible very well. Where does Elijah come in, and how does he relate to David, if at all? Uh, I know that Samson fought the Philistines, and David fought a Philistine, so, but where do they go together in this story? I think for many of us, the whole story of Scripture is a bit confusing to us because we do hear a lot of stories through preaching and through our Sunday school classes, but often we do not see the whole narrative of Scripture. And so uh, at the back is a 180-day reading plan that will take you through the narrative of Scripture. For parents, I have uh, two books that I would highly recommend to you. Uh, one is called The Big Picture Storybook Bible, and the other is called The Jesus Storybook Bible. And if you had to choose one, I would encourage you to choose this one. Uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible goes through uh, the biblical narrative of the scriptures, and uh, it is a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, Katie and I have both been known to come uh, into our room with tears in our eyes after just having read one of these stories uh, to Gloria. It's a wonderful book. I have learned a lot uh, simply by reading through this book, and it's given me a better understanding of the narrative of scripture. Suggestion number two, become very well acquainted with the Gospels. This is something that I have committed to do recently. I'm going to read through the Gospels over and over again through the rest of this year. To simply become very well acquainted with the stories of Jesus. Read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Whatever reading plan you may have, it would be of great benefit to you to read one chapter from the Gospels every day. Suggestion number three I would encourage you to do a slow, meditative reading on one or two verses during the day. Our lives, it seems to me, are overloaded with information. Information is being thrown at us all the time. We're people who are growing very accustomed to consuming information very quickly, very surface level, but not going very deep. And I think this is something we need to resist as Christians, especially if we're going to come to really know God's word. If we're going to be transformed by it, we will need to learn to slow down 
as we read it. For my birthday this past week, we had a, a steak dinner with a couple of friends, and I told Katie after the dinner that I love steak dinners because they take so long to eat. If you have a nice big steak on your plate, it, it takes a while uh, to chew into that thing. You have to chew on it for a while. And because you have to chew on it for a while, the meal seems to last a little bit longer. The conversations seem to last a little bit longer. So this is what I encourage you to do with the Bible. Take it slowly. Chew on it for a while. So what I do in my own reading is that I read a couple of chapters, and whatever, uh, whatever verse or a couple of verses stand out to me in that reading, I will spend some time meditating slowly, five or ten minutes, on those one or two verses that stood out to me in my reading that day. Think about its meaning. Think about what it's saying to me. Think about what God wants to say to me today in this verse or two. So if you don't know where to start, those are three possible suggestions. Read the whole of the biblical narrative chronologically to help understand the the big story better. Uh, Read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over again, and slowly meditate on just one verse, slowly thinking about it. These are practices of reading scripture that have been beneficial to me. What practices have been beneficial to you? Many of you are going to be going to lunch today. This would be an excellent question to discuss together today. What practices of reading scripture have been beneficial to me? And maybe if someone asks you that question and what's true of you is that you actually haven't opened your Bible in a year, tell them that. Let them pray for you. Ask that God would enable you to commit uh, to reading the word. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the stream of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Friends, we are invited into a relationship with the true and living God, the giver of real life. We are invited into his story invited to live according to his plans and purposes for our lives and for the world. We're tempted every single day to live according to some other story that the world tells us about what our life is. We are given God's word, though, to know the true story of reality so that our lives will be conformed to it. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the stream of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold any water. I want to close today by reading you a story. It's a story from the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, The story is the silver chair. For those of you who have never read the Chronicles of Narnia or aren't familiar with them, uh, Narnia is... uh, kind of see some of you kind of sitting back and relaxing, ready to hear a story. That's great. You guys know well how to listen to a story. I like that. Those of you who are not familiar with Narnia, Narnia is, um, is a land that, that children stumble their way into. And whenever they stumble their way into Narnia, inevitably they meet Aslan, the lion. 
And Aslan the lion is the Christ figure throughout all of these stories. And in the silver chair, uh, the two children that stumble into Narnia are named Jill and Eustace. And when they get into Narnia, uh, Jill does something very stupid. And uh, she, she um, really gets her friend Eustace into some big trouble. And uh, she becomes very sad about this, and she lays down in a wood and starts to cry and falls asleep. And when Jill wakes up, she is incredibly thirsty. And that's where this story begins. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where she could hear the stream coming from. It grew clearer every moment, and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward to drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone, with her mouth wide open. And she had very good reason for standing still. Just on this side of the stream lay a lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it, like the lions in Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away, as if it knew her very well but did not think very much of her at the moment. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved as she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. She realized that it was the lion speaking. She had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at, his, at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had came a step nearer. Do you eat 
girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then, said Jill. There is no other stream, said the lion. 